0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Radio podcasts. This is an episode in our series The Veteran's Story, produced in conjunction with Morecambe Football Club Community Sports and the First Light Trust. In this series, local veterans recount their experiences of serving in the armed forces and life since leaving. The views expressed here are of the individual contributor. This is The Veteran's Story.
1: This is the Veteran's Story podcast where we speak to people about their careers in the Armed Forces and find out their stories. And today I'm with Jackie Collins, who's going to tell us a little bit about her experiences of being in the Armed Forces. How are you doing, Jackie?
2: Hi, good morning. So my name is Jackie Collins and I served in the Royal Military Police from 1982 to 2014. So that's a total of 32 years. I served all over the world. Germany, Northern Ireland, Cyprus, Bosnia, UK postings, as well as doing my normal police job. I worked as a trainer in our training centre, I worked on the recruiting team, travelling around the country to get youngsters to join up and uh, basically I had a wonderful career out of it. Well, let's just take
1: it back to the start, Jackie, when you first joined up. How old would you have been when you first joined up? 18 when
2: I first joined.
1: Right, so was that straight out of school, pretty much? Straight from college. Right.
2: Um, My plan was actually to join Lancashire Constabulary, but at the time they weren't recruiting and they said, go away and get some life experience. So the initial thought was I'll join the military police for three years, which was the minimum term in them days, come back home at age 21 and join Lancashire Constabulary. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I was having such a good time, I stayed, the three-year point came and went, the six-year point came and went, the nine and twelve and fifteen came and went, and before I knew it, I completed 32 years.
1: Wow, that's incredible. So what was your, uh, your family's uh, reaction to your decision to join the military police?
2: Um, they were quite pleased, because um, it was meant to be just for the three years, and then even though it extended much longer, they'd got used to me being away anyway. So they were quite happy for it and I think it obviously teaches you how to grow up and become responsible and gives you a lot of life experiences and they could only say that as being a positive thing for me. So what was your training when you first joined? What what was involved in that? Uh, In the early days we had something called the WRAC, which was the Women's Royal Army Corps. So any female that joined the army was not their particular cat badge i.e. Royal Military Police in my case, I was WRAC Prevot attached to the Royal Military Police, which was a bit of a bugbear, because I had to do all the RMP training the same as a guy would do, but I had to do additional training on the female side, the WRAC side, and if I'd failed that, which luckily I didn't, I would not have been able to be promoted within the Military Police, and that lasted for the first 10 years of my career, so it wasn't until 1992 when girls were able to become policemen, women, in their own right, as part of the military police.
1: So what specifically did the, did the training involve? What are the, the main things that you remember? What was the hardest part, for example?
2: Um, well, the police training was six months long, and that was in a lovely place called Ruslan Barracks in Chichester, down in West Sussex. It's not there anymore now, it's, it's moved to um, Portsmouth. But we did lots of weapon training and MBC, um, learnt to drive, of course. That was probably my downside, because I learnt to drive in a in a Land Rover. So I was having to double de-clutch and I think I had a week's instruction and I was just thrown in a car and told, right, here's your driving test, which luckily I did pass first time. That was in the April of 1983. I then didn't drive again until the June of that month when I was sent to London District, which was my first posting. and told to get in a car and drive across London, which was rather harrowing, shall we say you'd
1: not had that much experience I'd doing had a week's it and Orlando. you're in, and and you're in London the, Absolutely. the capital yes very very busy yes right
2: where nobody pays any attention to sirens no. and blue lights anyway
1: so when you were in London that this was sort of a time when i suppose be, would there would be concerns about uh, the ira at this point absolutely. in absolutely
2: at um, 83 84 i was in London and actually i do remember one of the things that you couldn't do you couldn't walk out of camp in uniform because you were at risk from being attacked by the IRA. They were blowing up camps in England as well as um, troubles over the water and such like. And um, one of the pranks that the boys played on me, they told me I had to go and get a signal from the sent at Horse Guards. And it was a Friday morning, which meant that we'd polished all the cars ready for the OC's inspection. So I went to walk out and they said, no, 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 you can't walk out. It's against the rules, IRA threat. And I said, oh, okay, what am I meant to do then? And they gave me a and I set off down the road on a pushback. I'd got less than a hundred metres before I fell off. My hat came off, my skirt was up showing my knickers, my handbag was around my neck. They were all out in the road laughing and it wasn't till later I not realised that I had told them I couldn't ride a bicycle. So that had been something in the planning for a few days. What can we do to get her on a bike and that was one of the pranks that they played on me.
1: So as a woman in the military police, was that fairly typical of of the kind of uh, thing that happened to you?
2: Yes, M- more so than the boys and nobody would ever have dreamed of making a complaint about it because they were told, you were told it was character building um, and they were just doing it to make sure that you could take the banter and you could have a laugh and all the rest of it. So it wasn't nasty or malicious, it could have been, but it wasn't. Um, and then even when it changed 10 years later and we were all RMP together, you were still always, you know, you're attached. You're not proper RMP, and all this sort of business. So there's only one way to do, one thing to do, isn't there? in that case. You just got to work twice as hard to show the boys that you're exactly the same as them and you are mm. as good as them, which is what I spent my whole career yeah. doing, actually.
1: Yeah. And were there other women as well with you in your section at the time?
2: There was, but a lot of the time I would be the only girl uh, in a in a particular section or something like that. And then obviously because I did 32 years throughout the years, I was promoted and moved up the ranks. So then I was the person in charge.
1: So what other jobs did you work on during that time, during the 80s particularly?
2: Well I'd served in London, um, I went to Northern Ireland, so I used to work in bandit country. I worked on the South Armagh border with Southern Ireland, went out on patrol with the Paras and the cosbys and the Marine Commandos. Our daily commute to work was in a helicopter, uh, not in a Land Rover because it was too dangerous for vehicle moves, mm. so much so that... I would think to myself, oh God, not not another helicopter. And my friends and family at home were saying, oh, it's so exciting. How wonderful that you go to work in a helicopter because it was something that they would like to do as a one off social thing. And I was saying, no, I'm sick of them. I'm fed up of traveling in helicopters. So I did that and then I went to Cyprus. So that was a nice posting. It's a holiday posting, but of course it's difficult if you're there in a work role because we were providing 24 hour police cover so shifts were 10 hours, for daytime shifts, 14 hours for a nighttime shift. That was pretty difficult, but at least on your, if you got a day off, you could go to the beach. So that was quite nice. Um, then I went back to Ireland, which again was a, a lovely posting, albeit dangerous, but we, we played hard, we worked hard and we had a good time socially. And then I went out to Germany, uh, to Munster, and some point after that I went to our training centre, so I was one of the first ever female instructors at our training centre, it It'd always been a male orientated thing, so that was quite nice. A few years later I was put in charge of the recruiting team, so I worked out of Worthy Down and I, as I say, travelled the country, um, going to big school fairs and things, um, giving presentations, running look at life courses and we targeted the 14 year-old kids and upwards to try and get them to uh, show an interest in the Army and particularly in the RMP, I did that for three years Uh, and then other other postings afterwards, I went back to Cyprus again. I did a a UN and a a tour of Cyprus and I did a NATO tour in Bosnia, seven and a half years in Northern Ireland in total, eight years in Germany, uh, four and a half years in Cyprus, six months in Bosnia, and the rest of the time was in the UK in various roles. And then the last eight years of my army career, I was on the long service list because I've done my time, of course, I did extra and I worked in a welfare role and I worked at Blanford with the Royal Signals for four years and then I moved to Borden and I worked with the REME for four years and then I finished my army career 2014.
1: Just going back, I mean, you mentioned about Northern Ireland, saying that uh, you know it was it was enjoyable, it had a great time socially, but also also dangerous. So did you, did you say you were on border patrol? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, how did how did that feel at the time?
2: Well, in the early eighties, it was very important that girls were seen to be girls because we they didn't feel that we were targets. So although we were jumping out of helicopters that were hovering, and we were in bandit country as they called it, and patrol with the paras, we wore skirts. So we were not in combats, we were not armed in any way, shape or form and the guys were all in combats with cam cream on and when they jumped out the helicopter they got down and their leopard crawled across the field and we just ran uh, with our skirts on um, trying not to show our knickers but the pirates thought it was funny to cross the same river seven times in a patrol, or as many barbed wire fences as they could find. You know, it's funny, let's watch the girls struggling, etc, etc. The next time I was in Northern Ireland, and was doing those sorts of patrols, we did wear combats, but we could not wear cam cream. We still were not armed, and we still had to look like females. And then the final time I was in Northern Ireland, which was in the 90s, just before the Good Friday Agreement, the rules had changed completely and a male or a female soldier was just a soldier. So I was out on patrol with a weapon, with with a helmet on, with combats on, with cam cream on, patrolling dangerous areas, up the cupola in a Land Rover with my weapon because um, it was so dangerous. And that's how it changed over the years. So I was there, the first time was 83, the last time was 98.
1: Were there any specific incidents that you were ever involved in that were that were particularly dangerous?
2: All my patrols down South Armagh were dangerous, to be perfectly honest. At that time it was the most dangerous place in the world, particularly the Uh And when you went out on patrol it was always a risk that you may or you may not come back. They as I said earlier that they didn't think that girls were at risk, which is why we looked like females. But a colleague of mine, a girl called Carolyn, who was also at Military Police, was actually shot while she was on patrol in Belfast. And the bullet went through her face, uh, in one side of her face and out through the other side of her face, taking her tongue with her. And then they realized that uh, it's indiscriminate. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. If the terrorists want to have a go, they, and they've got plans made, they'll do it anyway. Um, I did lose lots of friends out there, as you can imagine. Mm. But it just became a, a day-to-day occurrence of when you go shopping, you check your car, you don't speak to people you limit your social life where you can really to camp which is one of the reasons why i loved it we did work hard but we also played hard as well so that was the fun of it and people think i'm a bit balmy when i say that my postings in northern ireland were some of the best postings that i had in my career actually
1: when when you sort of reflect on it i mean i guess you know you're saying it sort of became like an everyday an everyday thing, but I mean, is, it, is it a case of while it's happening, you're kind of getting on with the job, but when you sort of look back in, in years to come, how do, how do you kind of reflect on it?
2: i still still reflecting the same. It's still something that needed to be done that we just got on with. Things pop up on Facebook, memories on Facebook and, and whatever. you. At the moment, uh, the murder of two signals corporals has just popped up as a Facebook memories, Corporal House and Corporal Wood. And I was there at the time actually, in 1988, and I remember it happening. And they got into a a funeral and they were attacked by the IRA and murdered. I remember being there and being told, scramble, get out on patrol, we need to set up checkpoints and all the rest of it. We had no idea why information started coming through that there'd been a shooting, but we thought that the IRA had shot at the Loyalist paramilitaries, perhaps the UDA or the UFF or something. And it wasn't until uh, much, much later that night when we came in off patrol that we discovered it was two of our own that had been killed. So that was quite painful.
1: We'll talk about something a little bit sort of more, more positive. You you mentioned some of the work that you did, sort of later in in, in your career. And how how rewarding was that?
2: Um, I liked the training job, and like I said, I was one of the first female instructors that went there. And it was and, it, and I'd been headhunted. I'd been on a course beforehand, and they'd said um, I was serving in Northern Ireland at the time, and I'd been on a promotion course. And they said we need you here, and I said no, I don't want to come here got a lovely boyfriend in the Army Air Corps who flies helicopters and you, you get lots of extra money in Northern Ireland and you don't pay food and accommodation and they said no no they want you, they really want you to go there so I was short-toured and sent out and I was there for over three years and um, I actually d- did enjoy it, it was a very difficult job being a, an instructor um, you sort of work seven days a week but again Work hard, play hard, and it was just rewarding that you were churning out after six months, capable, professional, little military policemen and women. And that was 91, 94. And now, years and years later, I bit the bullet a few years ago and actually joined Facebook. And a lot of these little trainees that I was responsible for have added me as friends since never really thought about it I just presumed that they would have hated me because a lot of people hate their instructors and some of them have have said oh I remember you because you were the nicest person that I ever met you were the most supportive and you were so good to me and you were so kind and you were so whatever and I was like stop it stop it just do my job Um, and get all embarrassed by people saying nice things and that anyway but it was it was a lovely rewarding job and some of these people went on to have full careers and became RSMs and things. So I must have done something right somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it does sound that way. Thirty-two years then—that's that's an incredible uh, amount of time. When it came to an, an an end, what was the what was the reason? Was it was it simply you, you decided to? Sort of it of time served. Or, um, yeah.
2: I'd been lucky to get extra years out of mm. it, but at age fifty, which is what I was, I thought, "Blimey, it's now time to go." Um, I wasn't physically fit enough to do the things that were expected that I'd easily done at my thirties and forties. So my career came to an end in 2014 and I'm very lucky that now I get to work for Age UK Lanx as the older veterans outreach worker. So I cover the whole of Lancashire, dealing with any veterans aged 50 and over. And as we know, a veteran's anybody that's done one day or more in service. And my job is to help reduce social isolation and loneliness so it's extremely rewarding because for example I'm at Morecambe FC today, I've brought people here in the past who live in the local area and they never even realised that it was on because we're talking of an age of people that aren't on Facebook, that don't do social media so they don't see things like that, they need stuff in your doctors or they need a leaflet or an advert in the paper or something and I bring them here and they make friends and they start a new connection and it just opens up a whole new social group for them and it's one fellow veteran speaking to another which is brilliant because you don't have to explain what is the naffy or what is an egg banjo they just know instinctively there's nothing worse than telling a really good story so you think and by the time you've stopped and explained what all the military things mean to a civilian, that funny story has just not become funny at all. It's become very long and drawn out and boring and you've missed your punchline.
1: But So an event like this is really important, isn't it? I mean, particularly in your your role, because like you say, you'll come into contact with countless veterans who, who have all are on their own now or have been, I don't know, struggling with...
2: There's many that's on their own because, yeah. it's, as I say, I deal with over 50s, but it's generally 80, 90-year-olds I deal with, mm. the National Service type end, and they are lonely because they've lost a partner, they don't drive anymore, they've got mobility issues, etc., and they just don't leave the house from one week to the next, and they don't see anybody. So for those people to come to an event like this where they speak to fellow veterans, where they've got people that can help them. Because I know there's, there's always members of the British Legion here. Roger Dennison, the councillor, is always here. I come when I can from Age UK. Lengths. If people need further assistance, they've got the necessary people on hand to be able to help them there and then
1: from your own point of view, being surrounded by fellow veterans and being able to chat with them about your experiences?
2: I just love talking to veterans anyway. It's part of my job, but I get to, <laughs> but you do, love it. I get to do something I love and I get paid for it, so who could complain about that?
1: Well, Jackie, thank you so much for chatting to us today and, and uh, telling us your story. And thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to The Veterans Story. You can subscribe to the podcasts and visit the Beyond Radio podcast page at www.beyondradio.co.uk forward slash podcasts to hear further veteran stories as they are released. For information on how the First Light Trust is helping local veterans, visit www.firstlighttrust.co.uk Beyond Radio